1966, the Beatles gave up playing live, in part because they couldn't hear each other and the audience couldn't hear them. Welcome to A History of Live Sound, where I speak to people who are involved in solving these problems and making modern concerts possible. This week is the second part of my interview with Phil Dudderidge. Having toured across Europe and the US mixing Led Zeppelin, Phil had returned home to build PA systems when he met electronics engineer Graham Blythe, who wanted to build a new design of mixing desk with 16 channels. This was at a time when a five-channel WEM audio master was the live standard. Where we left off last time, he just started making the Series 1 desk. It was popular, although it wasn't called the Series 1 at that point, because there wasn't a Series 2 yet. Yes, it was the. Uh, it was just called the Soundcraft sixteen into two. At that point, you were also running a PA company at the same time. Just as if building the desks wasn't enough. Yeah, we'd done that at RSD. We'd had a, a PA rental system, and I think I mentioned last time that uh, yeah, we did English bands like Mott the Hoople and the Kinks, amongst others. And uh, you know that gave us exposure and experience using. With RSD, it was more to do with getting exposure for the speaker systems than anything, but the mixers too, Graham's Mark IV modular mixer. And uh, there was a a guy involved with that called Roger Lindsay, a sound engineer who had worked with the uh, Zombies singer. What was his name? Do you remember the Zombies singer? I don't remember the the name, but I I know of Roger Lindsay. He's quite famous in the... uh sound engineering world um colin blunston oh very good um it just came back to me so yeah roger was working with colin blunstone he had a wmpa with uh, an audio master and he was interested in getting a mixer he bought a 12 channel mark IV uh from us and in getting to know him you know he wanted to get more involved with us and one thing led to another and we embraced his WEMPA. I think we basically must have sold it. I can't remember what we did with it, but he ended up with an RSD PA. We created a new PA company called Europa um, with Soundcraft and he was then able to uh, use the, you know, the latest Soundcraft mixer was available uh-huh. and the speaker system we bought from Stephen Court, Court Acoustics. Oh, um, yes, the legendary Court yeah. system. Well, it suffered from some of the same issues that the RSD system had of lacking any real bottom end. Uh, it was polite. Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> and we did, you know, it worked well with various sort of polite artists. Um, but did quite a lot of American bands and so on. Was was that because they were used to having a big system in the US with you know, which was maybe more used to the touring world and they'd come over and they'd be like, Well, we want the same in the UK. Well, I don't know exactly what that had what their um process of choosing a system. We marketed um Europa to management agencies in London who were bringing bands over and artists over. Uh, so um, I'm not sure that the, the artists themselves had 
a great deal uh, <laughs> involved in, 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 in making the choice. But, but yeah, Roger ran the system single-handed initially and then started building Well, he had a, a couple of crew guys, Mick Patterson and um, Paul Bliss, yeah, both of whom I still know. Mick Patterson is now retired but worked for many years at Soundcraft and then for many years, mm-hmm. even more years, at Apogee in America. He went to oh, live right. in the States. He's a Liverpudlian. As was Roger, amazing sense of humour, just you know, crack you up all the time. <laughs> I, I work mainly with with uh, scousers mm-hmm. in for one of my one of my main jobs, and it's it's just they are the funniest people I know. I just don't bother trying to make jokes because they're much yeah. better. They don't even try; <laughs> they just it just comes out of their mouths. Yeah. Uh, so, and the other Paul Bliss, who's actually a musician rather than a, a, a road crew guy, but like most musicians, they, in times of need, uh, they do some <laughs> roadieing too. So uh, that's how I first met him. Um, and he had a band called The Bliss Band and made a couple of albums in the States. Uh, sadly, those albums never really took off, but they were great albums. And uh, the first one was produced by Skunk Baxter, recorded at Cherokee, I remember visiting the session we've remained firm friends ever since and his daughter hannah is now the marketing director of focus rights in california so for the u.s market (laughs) uh, she's a a peer of and best friends with joanna my daughter oh it's it's lovely that it it comes full circle yeah yeah europa um Sadly, had to come to an end in 1980 when Soundcraft was going through some financial stresses due to a very strong pound, which made exporting difficult. We came to the conclusion that Europa was an, uh, you know, a luxury that we couldn't afford. It wasn't making money, it was costing money. And so Roger obtained some backing from Asgard Agency, one of the clients, and bought the system out and went off on, on his own and ultimately found himself being hired for his own engineering capability without the system. So um, I don't know what happened to the system in the end. But, uh, yes. Oh, he's, he's had a glittering career now yeah. anyway. So, uh, yes, yes, he certainly has. So once you'd got a, a couple of desks under your belt, as it were, were you... Did you always start off thinking we want to be making live desks, or was it, or was it from the outset? Was it studio and live? Or? No, it was, um, initially um, live was the focus. But in probably seventy four, I mean, really early on, there was a retailer in Charing Cross Road called R E W, and the manager there, whose name I think was Brian Hawkins. He said, you know, why don't you do a, a four-bus version rather than just a stereo mixer with a little monitor section, basically sketched out on a bit of paper what he was thinking of, which was a very simple derivation of the 16 into 2, but for recording purposes, to go with the TIAC 3340, something like that. That was a, a, a four-track um, recorder on quarter-inch tape. And he was starting to sell a lot of those to people wanting to record in simple multi-track and needed a mixer to go with. Mm. And and so we started building those initially just for him and then other people 
recognised the potential. And before we knew it, we were you know, making as many probably for recording as we were for, for live sound. The first one was a 12 into 4, and I think we did a larger one at 16 into 4 later. I love the idea that they thought, well, let's build a mixing desk to suit this tape machine rather than <laughs> it was it was uh, being led well, it's by... Well, ironic, but, but um, you know, the tape machine had been developed, um, as I was reading just the other day, as a quadraphonic to replace stereo, as a consumer machine. Uh... Now, quadraphonic never took on as a consumer format, but people quickly recognised the potential for it. Uh, to be a recorder of original music rather than copying quadraphonic albums, which is, I think, what the original intent was. Mm. Uh, just in the same way that people used to use, you know, Revoxes to copy records, uh, saving saving a few bob, bit of private piracy. You did mention as well um, an interesting story, still sort of in the Europa time of supplying equipment to the old grey whistle test. Yes. Um, that was uh, a job that we... It wasn't exactly a contract, but it, uh, it was a, a regular thing for quite a long time. And um, Simon Hart, um, who's still a close friend, had been hired by Roger as a, an assistant engineer. And he he got that job to uh, to take a monitor system into BBC Television Centre for um, the recording of the old grow whistle test. And he, he managed to persuade the recalcitrant BBC engineers to change their minds. On the microphones, yeah. The um, SM58 was uh, our microphone of choice for lead vocals, you know, due to its uh, general performance, but especially its... Um, resistance to uh, to feedback so if all you've got in the room is a monitor system there's no pa facing the other way so there's uh, as much risk as ever of of getting feedback particularly on the lead vocals and there was one particular session where they were having trouble because i think the band were very loud in the studio so therefore the monitors needed to be louder and louder to keep up and feedback was becoming an issue with the um, AKG C451s, which were the BBC standard at that time for vocals. So Simon basically just unplugged the C451 and put an SM58 in its place, uh, and suddenly all the problems went away. Now, up to then, the BBC says, oh, you can't do that, can't you? It's not broadcast quality, but when they actually heard one, uh, there's no reason <laughs> not to use it, and every reason to do so. Um, they've been using sure mics ever since, I think. In my mind, I'd be like, that seems like the worst possible choice of microphone to use for a vocal is a 451, if you want to hear any of it in a monitor because it picks up everything. But, uh, yes, it just seems funny that that was, that was the standard. Yeah, well, they weren't used to using monitor systems uh, in the BBC. So, you know, if you look to the average variety show, well, I mean, the top of the pops, they were miming most of the time anyway. So uh, it, even if they were holding a microphone, it probably wasn't working. <laughs> um, but with you know, your typical variety shows, they would be holding this little thin pencil microphone, uh, which didn't obscure the face. It was all about 
the image more than <laughs> the uh, functionality. But they didn't have monitor systems, so uh, I guess uh, the artist was able to hear themselves if the backing music wasn't too loud. Mm. Who knows? I don't know. I saw an interview, oh, sorry, I've heard an interview with Rusty Bruchet from Shoko, mm-hmm. and he was talking about when they started a company in the 1970s. He said one of the, the big problems they had was trying to explain to anyone who did finance what it was they were doing, because he, he said you know it was very difficult to get any loans or to get people to support them because they just didn't get that this was a viable business because no one had done it before. I was wondering if that was a, ever a problem for you. Well, yeah, when we started out both uh, with RSD and with Soundcraft, there were businesses started with um, next to no working capital. I funded RSD at the beginning with probably a thousand pounds, I don't know, something like that, uh, from uh, my touring and uh, uh, and van hire escapades over the previous few years. I, I didn't spend money in those days. I used to earn money but not spend it, mm-hmm. you know, very frugal. Um, so I built up um, a bit of capital, which uh, came in handy. So getting off the ground, you know, at the outset wasn't such an, uh, a, an issue, but actually building things was more of one. Uh, the general practice then with the PA systems at RSD and and the and mixers uh, in general was getting the artist or the the purchaser of the of the console to pay fifty percent on ordering and the balance on delivery, so that they were funding the working capital ah. uh, during that process. And it was a fairly standard regime that you know large console manufacturers like neve and uh, later on ssl would adopt you know get the customer to fund the actual working capital um and but obviously with the 16 into 2 and the other production mixers soundcraft quickly got into a situation number one of generating uh profits which became usable for building our working capital but also they were the sort of products that you know they were off the shelf effectively uh even if there was a long delivery time because we couldn't build enough of them and so people expected to either pay cash on delivery or you know in the case of retailers they wanted 30 days credit and so over time we became able to offer those sort of facilities Mm. so I guess exporting was quite an important part of the business, though, because you said how it, it sort of took off in America quite well. Yeah, well, I, my sense was that um, in early 1974, when we launched the uh, 16 into 2, uh, the number of dealers for that sort of product was limited. You know, the average music store didn't know what to do with it one or two specialists, um, REW being one of them, which was just down the road from what uh, had become our, our base of operations, which was the Fender Sound House in Tottenham Court Road, where we rented space on the top floor in the attic, effectively. So my sense was you know, we, we needed to be selling abroad 
in order to get the sort of growth and volume that we aspired to um, and not be chasing our tails trying to sell to the UK market specifically. Somehow, having travelled in, in Europe and the States for several years with bands, I, I was familiar with overseas travel and overseas markets, if you like. Mm. You'd seen what they've got, so... Yeah, <laughs> and, and the States I'd only been to once, but you know, it had been a fairly comprehensive visit you know, all over the country in, in the space of the famous 30 days. So, um, yeah, I, I wasn't intimidated by that, but it started with the... Frankfurt Music Massa in the spring of 74, which I'd learned about. And I went over there with a, a 16 into 2. I guess I'd arranged it ahead of time, but I had the mixer on somebody else's exhibition stand, just as a sort of test marketing, really. Uh, I think it was with somebody who might have become a partner. I don't think that actually came to anything particular, but I, I made my first contacts at that show including Paul Ash, one of the uh, Sam Ash family uh, members uh, from New York. Uh, he came to visit London after the show, came up to see us in the Fender Sound House and was not put off by what he saw, although it wasn't particularly salubrious, and suggested that I come over to the States for the NAM show, which I'd not heard of before, in, which was in the following June. Mm. So to cut a long story short, I flew over to the States with two mixers, uh, one for Sam Ash uh, music stores to keep and the other for me to take to Houston in Texas for the, uh, for the NAMM show, which was the, uh, the only year that the NAMM show occurred in Houston for those interested in such details. <laughs> um, uh, it was uh, subsequently in uh, sh Chicago for many years, and uh, in those days it was the principal annual show, uh, the summer NAM. There was a winter NAM, which was much smaller, and at some mm -hmm. future date, I can't remember when, probably around 1980, they switched the um, relative importance, so the summer NAM became the junior market, um, and, the, and the winter NAM became the major show. So um, getting back to that first show in, in Houston, I had the mixer with me in the hotel room, went to the first day of the show with some flyers, walked around the floor, talked to a few people, bumped into one particular stand that was selling um, guitar pedals and chatted with the guy who was running the stand. It was his own business. And he got very interested in the, in, in the mixer. I said, have you got one here? Have you got a stand? And I said, no, I haven't got a stand. He said, but I've got a mixer. He said, where is it? Up in the hotel room. Well, why don't you bring it down, put it on the stand here, and we'll see what you know interest we yeah. can drum up in it. So that's what we did. And believe it or not, it was about the only proper mixer at the show. Wow. Um, yeah. There was... Only one other that I can recall from that show, which was um, by, I think it was Acoustic, the people who made um, oh, the, the bass guitar amps. amps. Yeah. Um, but it was something that was never seen again, basically. I think they were just testing the market in some way. It must have been like turning up with a golden egg in the middle of this. Uh... <laughs> well, there were either people who got very excited or people who said, what the hell's that? 
you know, so anyone involved in in live sound recognised its potential immediately. But most of the MI dealers didn't do much in the way of PA, you know, beyond a short vocal mm. master, and didn't see the potential. But they caught on pretty quick, it has to be said. Excellent. When I was in New York, um, you know, my first stage of that little trip, I was welcomed by the the Ash family very graciously. And the following day, we went to one of the retail outlets um, in the neighborhood, Hempstead in New New York State, outside the city. And I had to explain to the store staff what this mixer was for, and they couldn't understand why anyone would want 16 channels. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, I I explained the concept of miking everything up, and it was like a light bulb went off. And they figured, 16 channels, that's 16 microphones we could sell. You know, (laughs) um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, as I say, once you kind of show people, something new if it's got any merit they'll recognize it straight yeah. away excellent so soundcraft around the late 70s gets a, an, an export awards so did, did you feel like a, a very official body by that point oh we felt quite grown up by then yeah 79 i think it was yeah 79 we got the queen's award we got it again in 84 for that was for export achievement and we were by then in a building in Clerkenwell, sort of between the West End and East London. There's this area just north of the city. And it was a fairly run-down area at the time, which had been dominated by the um, typesetting industry. And hot metal typesetting was going out of fashion, so there was lots of empty spaces. And the building we were in, which was purpose-built, for that industry with very heavy-duty floors because they they had great big machines for, for making typesetting. Um, they needed big load-bearing floors. Well, that wasn't relevant to us, but, uh, yeah, the building was emptying floor by floor, different companies closing down. And so we initially went into one floor and then uh, progressively took over the whole building. And that served us till the mid-80s. I think we, we moved the end of 84. The, the idea of having manufacturing in central London now seems quite <laughs> mad that it could happen. But Yeah, well, when you start with, you know, two men and a dog sort of thing, it, it doesn't sound so ridiculous. But if things succeed, you quickly outgrow the sort of facilities that, that you need hmm. for electronics manufacturing. Uh, that's for sure. So we moved out to Boreham Wood at the end of 84, as I recall. Um, it's either 84 or 85. My memory is getting a bit hazy. And we took over a brand new sort of factory warehouse building um, on the outskirts of Boreham Wood, which um, was on land that had been part of the MGM film studios lot, uh. part of Elstree Studios. Uh, which was not Elstree Studios wasn't just one studio it was like Hollywood it was uh, the film industry was consolidated there as well as Pinewood and Shepperton and Ealing and Denham and film studios all over the place back in the 50s and 60s and uh, at this point would you say were you still very much a large format mixing desk company or were you starting to look at the smaller end of the market or was it very much a bespoke operation 
Well, the 16 into 2 and its derivatives were the, as small as we really went. I mean, we had derivatives like the Series 200 years later, which took its place. But we sort of started at that level and worked our way up. So, again, with live sound, we, the Series 2 was um, a semi-modular design. It was uh, the inputs were in blocks of four channels. And we went up to... I think 36 channels was probably the largest format that we went to. That had been designed initially as a four bus, then an eight bus, or maybe both at the same time. It was probably offered both four and eight bus versions um, in about 77, 1977. And that quickly got adopted as a live mixer as well. So although it was with no change to the design, people were using the uh, buses as subgroups. So um, that was uh, a common thing to buy the eight bus board panning between, you know, one and two, three and four, et cetera, um, in, into four stereo subgroups into a stereo master. And the monitor section above the subgroup faders would uh, often be not used at all in a live situation, but they could be used as uh, stereo returns into the main mix. And earlier on you mentioned about building the first studio desk designed to suit a four-track tape machine. You know, it was almost specifically ordered to suit that machine. Well, the, the next thing to come along was the Otari 8-track. So the development of what you might call second-generation multi-tracks. You know, you already had people like um, 3M, MCI from America, and Studer and Lyrec from Denmark making expensive, high-end multi-track machines. And they, they too, were growing the formats from um, 8 to 16 to 24-track and beyond uh, 32-track. I think somebody produced... Uh, an analog 32 track. In fact, I think Brunel did, um, although I don't think that was successful. Mm. Are you familiar with Brunel? Yeah, so I, I became familiar with Brunel because um, doing a bit of research, I read about Soundcraft Magnetics. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, you made... Well, I, I just bought... <laughs> I just bought a week or two ago uh, the history of Brunel that um, uh, I didn't... No, I, I can't remember how I stumbled across it, but I found it on Amazon and ordered it. And somebody's um, written a fairly comprehensive history of Brunel engineering and and how Soundcraft Magnetics emerged from it. Well, it, it was interesting because I remembered I was reading through this, going, "Gosh, Soundcraft made a made tape machines as well." And then it said, "Oh, it's an Allen and Heath made tape machines and." Quite randomly, a, a studio that I worked in for a little while when I started out, it was attached to a, a college, but if you were very nice and you knew someone at the college, you could go in there sometimes. And they had a Saturn, but I never saw yeah. the Saturn because it was, in the it was in the machine room, but it was actually a Soundcraft Saturn, yeah. <laughs> which I didn't realise. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite a story there. Two uh, sort of key people from... Uh, Brunel had been bought by Allen and Heath some years earlier. And then around 1983, Alex Nicholas, who 
was the mechanical designer, and John Eustace, who was the designer of the electronics, came to see us and said that they wanted to start a new company because they were fed up with the ownership of Alan and Heath Brunel. They didn't feel properly supported and so mm. on. So we agreed to start a subsidiary of Soundcraft uh, that they would own a quarter share in and we would fund the development of the products and the, and the business. It did quite well for a number of years, but um, unfortunately by the late 80s, I'm, I'm saying around 1988, analogue multi-track recording was you know, clearly coming to the end with the development of digital recording, and uh, we basically couldn't compete. But the Saturn was the culmination of several years' development and was the first multi-track um, machines uh, that was microprocessor controlled, had automatic alignments, um, and was f- frankly superior to anything that Studer were making. And I remember with pleasure that we launched it at the AES convention in Montreux, Switzerland. So right in Studer's backyard, um, <laughs> a machine that was, you know, they subsequently brought out an equivalent in the A. 800, I think it was called, which was also microprocessor controlled, but we'd basically beaten them to it. <laughs> you gave them a bloody nose. It's a very fine machine. Um, it was just too late. If we'd brought it out three years earlier, it would have been amazing. But yeah, that's, the, that's life. So at that stage, people were switching quickly to Sony 24 and 48 track digital machines and to the Mitsubishi and Otari 32-track digital machine, which was essentially the same machine under two different brands. I think the electronics may have been subtly different, but um, essentially they were the same machine. Uh, Also, at this time in the mid-'80s, still on a studio sort of vibe, I was looking through it... There's the document that Soundcraft produced around 2000, sort of mentioning a few milestones in their career, and it, and it says all these people who were using Soundcraft mixing desks, and I was like, oh, it, it really, it, you know, it, they they really got about a bit, and um, they were talking about uh, Bob Dylan had one in his home studio, and I, I read a story I spoke about earlier where Prince had a, a TS24 in his home studio. And when he got some money, he was like, right, I'm going to build a new studio, upgrade the studio, put a new MCI desk in that's been custom made because he's using MCI and he thinks he likes it. And after a couple of months, they took it out and put the Soundcraft back in. <laughs> because mm. they, and, and it's now still there at Paisley Park. All these years later, he has three, well, he did have, there were three studios. And despite all of the advances in technology in that time, the Soundcraft was still there in Studio Two. It was it was still one of his go to tools. So yeah, and there was also another story about Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. Yeah, I was about to mention Dave Stewart um, when you mentioned Bob Dylan. Uh, they were very good friends at the time, and I wondered whether Bob Dylan had got his Soundcraft as a result of having visited the Church Studio in uh, Hornsey which Dave Stewart had built. He originally had two rooms, 
both with TS24s and Saturn tape machines. In fact, Dave Stewart came to Montreux for the unveiling of the Saturn machine and was, you know, having ordered them already, he, he sort of did that uh, cliche thing of trade shows of, of appearing to order two Saturn machines which he'd already <laughs> ordered. Shake hands and take a photo. It was the public. It was the public, yeah, announcement of him ordering them. So, but uh, yeah, he was uh, uh, very generous to do that. He'd been recording in Germany, I think, in Frankfurt, and flew down. He got himself to Montreux, and then I, I drove him back uh, to um, to Geneva Airport, and it's a very. I, I, I'm not sure if he was very tired or under the influence but <laughs> had a very strange conversation <laughs> along the way well uh, but i'm very appreciative to him for for being a great supporter of us when we needed it well um this was in a, a recent interview he was talking about their sort of early days as a band and how they'd just set up they had no money um, they had a little bit of equipment, but they would just set up wherever they could. And I think he said they were in Berlin for a time, and they had. Well, Sweet Dreams uh, was recorded using a Series Two and the eight-track, the one-inch eight-track that Soundcraft Magnetics first produced. Wow, uh, and that was that would have been around eighty-three, I suppose, something like that. And he liked the sound of the Series 2 so much that even when he was using larger SSL-style desks, he had a, a section of Series 2 that he had built into a box so he could take it with him like a bit of outboard. <laughs> uh, so he had his, his input channels through the, the mic pre and EQ of the, of the Soundcraft, even if he was using an SSL or something else. There's a story about Bob Dylan going to record at the church and he was given the address, which was something like Crouch End Hill instead of Crouch Hill. There's a slight error in how the road was written down. And so um, he, he turns up at the wrong address. Yeah, he turned up at somebody's house and uh, knocked on the door and asked if Bob was there. Uh, or Dave was there, rather. And uh, the woman who answered the door was married to somebody called Dave. <laughs> um, no, but he'll be back too. So, yeah, come in and have a cup of tea. And had no idea that it was Bob Dylan. <laughs> so he was there for an hour or two before this guy came back. Uh, but Bob Dylan was apparently so sort of enamoured with his sort of welcoming experience that um, he then wanted to buy the house or one next door or something like that. <laughs> uh, be like, Dave, uh, Bob's here to see you. Bob who? I don't know. <laughs> that would be a bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I guess we reached towards the end of the eighties, and Harmon are on the scene. So were they, were they the US distributor? Um, no, not at that time. Um, originally, the the guy that I met in nineteen seventy four had his company based in Kalamazoo, Michigan. So we set up um, eventually as um, Soundcraft North America in Kalamazoo. And the woman who was running the office for him eventually took over from him when he disappeared. And um, he did return uh, eventually, <laughs> some years later. But, so uh, she was working directly for us 
in Kalamazoo, but then eventually decided she wanted to move to California. So we said, well, uh, we don't want to be in Kalamazoo particularly. It's not the center of the universe. So uh, the idea of being based in L.A. made a lot more sense. So she, instead of leaving the company, we encouraged her to move the company to Los Angeles. And uh, she set up shop there, and we ran with her as general manager of Soundcraft North America. Between January 81 and end of 85, towards the end of 85, and we were having all sorts of financial difficulties um, at that time. And she coincidentally was having her first child. I should mention that the woman I'm speaking of is um, known as Bessie Bennett. That's her first married name. Uh, she is now Mrs. Clearwater, having married Bob Clearwater. Clear Mountain, I mean. <laughs> Sorry. So Bob Clear Mountain is her husband. Wow. She was actually, she was Mrs. Uh, Bruce Jackson at the time. She met Bruce and they had their, their daughter, Alexandria, I think it was September or October um, 85, right around the same time that jo uh, my daughter Joanna was born, which is how I remember. I should drop in here, as Phil has mentioned a couple of names that we should quickly follow up. Betty Bennett, as Phil mentioned, ran Soundcraft North America and subsequently founded Apogee Electronics with her then-husband, Bruce Jackson. Apogee are very well known for high-quality studio equipment today. Now, Bruce Jackson was an Australian sound engineer who started the Australian audio company Jans, which is still running today, was Elvis's monitor engineer and flew Elvis's plane, mixed Bruce Springsteen for 10 years... Mixed Barbara Streisland, was the audio director for the Olympics and designed the late contour processors that have been the standard PA system controllers for the past 15 years. So quite busy. Bob Clearmountain is a legendary sound engineer and producer who has mixed the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, In Excess, Toto, Bon Jovi, David Bowie, anyone you care to mention. Anyway, back to the story. So combination of the troubles we were having, incurring losses in the American market and the uncertainty of how things would run, uh, whether she'd be able to run it as a new mother, we decided with her that, in fact, she suggested to me that we sell the American distribution business to uh, JBL or offer it to them. Mm. So uh, she knew the uh, guy who ran that business, Ron Means. Um, he was the general manager of JBL Professional, which was the uh, division responsible for selling JBL in the American market. And um, to cut a long story short, um, Harmon bought uh, Soundcraft North America, so basically the distribution rights and uh, personnel and so on. And that... Um, released a lot of working capital that helped us through our financial crisis. So so Harmon, Harmon bought Soundcraft North America? In, in 84, 85 rather, um, towards the end of 85. We then sort of worked with, with them over the next few years. But by 87, they decided they liked the look of 
Soundcraft so much they wanted to buy the whole company. And ultimately that happened in June of 1988. So suddenly having worked for 20-odd years, slaving away at, at gigs and then building mixing desks and then selling mixing desks, and suddenly you were a free agent... Yes, yeah. Uh, I left the company at the end of 88. Um, we had a six-month, what they call, earn-out period where the value of the company was assessed based on that six-month period of performance. We'd received a sort of down payment and then the balance was based on the performance of that six-month earn-out period, which is you know, relatively short, but you know, gave them a sense of security. I think they were... Slightly surprised that we did quite so well during those six months. Um, <laughs> well, there was an onus on you to, uh, <laughs> to do quite so, well. There. So we got what seemed to be a reasonable price at the time, mm. although with hindsight, I think it was far too cheap. I mean, we sold altogether, including our, we had some venture capital involved at that stage, but the whole company uh, they bought for about 10 million and the profit was about one million, so they paid about ten times the net profit, which uh, back in in those days was um, not untypical, shall we say? I think today it would be regarded as far too cheap. Multiples are greater these days. Have, having not bought or sold any companies recently, <laughs> I, I don't know what the current uh, current going rate is, but. Uh... So you worked out your uh, time there, and were you planning on going on a cruise, or <laughs> what was your... I didn't really have any plans. Um, I think I was in a, a state of shock, really, having sold the company and, and not really enjoying. In the process, I sort of fell out of love with Harman and didn't expect to be there very long, and I wasn't there very long. After the earn-out period, it was made clear that my services weren't really required anymore so um, I was invited to become a consultant to the company and I didn't fancy that so I just walked away from it so um, it was only a matter of weeks into the new year of uh, 1989 that I learned uh, that Rupert Neve with his company Focusrite was having difficulties and um, I went to visit the company with uh, my old friend Andrew Sterling to see what the situation was and whether it was something I should get involved in. And the situation was in such a financial mess that I, I said, no, I'm not interested and walked away. And then a matter of weeks later, I got a call to say the company had gone into liquidation and it was the liquidator calling saying, please come and have a meeting and, and take another look in the new circumstance. So the, the company ceased trading. Uh, ceased trading. We went up there, and there's, you know, it was just desolation road. Really, there's, there's nobody around except for Rupert Neve, who I met with, um, and uh, I have to say that I got seduced by the idea of starting a new business, and um, really sort of based around the uh, the assets of, of Focusrite, so the brand the existing designs, and the potential to be in the console business again rather mm. quickly. Focusrite at that stage had developed what was known as the Forte recording console, and they'd sort of 
delivered two, one to Electric Lady, one to Master Rock, which both needed to be essentially completed post-installation. We, uh, having bought the assets for about a quarter of a million pounds, uh, then uh, had to fund people to complete those consoles in situ just so the reputation of of the brand would not be completely trashed from day one. (laughs) Uh, Taking on the liabilities of the company, as it were, yeah. Well, we weren't formally liable, but it was more a question of self-interest that uh, that we wanted to ensure that anybody who had a, a focus right console was going to be able to, you know, say nice use things. it and yeah, and say nice things about us. So. Well, I've yeah. I've actually stood in front of that uh, Electric Ladyland console because mm-hmm. it's now at a studio called SST in New Jersey. Ah, oh, no, it's not. It's a different one. Is that a different one? Yeah. Oh, I thought that was it. No, I'm afraid not. No, I don't think it exists anymore. It was cut up, basically, uh, um, and sold off piecemeal. Um, so people were making outboard sidecars uh, with, you know, eight channels or so. But uh, no, the SST console, that's another story. Oh, right. um, <laughs> uh, It got flooded. I don't know if you during the Hurricane Sandy. Oh, yes, yes. Did you see it before or after? I saw it before that. Okay. So it, was, it must be 10 years ago that I saw right. it. Right, yeah. Well, the, the studio got flooded, and the lower half of the console was filled with water. Oh. Uh, so that was a bit tragic. But the upper half of the console was still fine. And what they ended up finding was the... Um, Conway console, which is the first one that we delivered to the States of the new, it was a different series. It was called the Folksrite Studio console, which was a, a new design based around the existing ISA 110 Mike Pre and EQ module. The Conway console had been decommissioned. I think it had a second life or even a third life in different studios. And what was left of it was everything except for the top half. The input uh, modules had all been sold off by somebody. So they found the the frame and all you know, everything else that went with the console, power supplies and everything, in a lock up somewhere in America. I mean, how they found it, I don't know, <laughs> but it was obviously advertised somewhere. And so they built a new console with, you know, half of Conway and the top half of the original um, SST console, which itself had come from somewhere else, I think possibly Nashville Music Mill. But uh, they were they were still kind of doing the rebuild when I visited there some years ago. Uh, um, I was talking about Betty Bennett just now. She left the company when we sold it to Harmon, the American mm-hmm. company, um, and her husband Bruce Jackson was uh, a live sound. Engineer of uh, great uh, notoriety in the American sense of the word, which is positive rather than negative. <laughs> um, so he was uh, at the time touring with Bruce Springsteen, and when uh, they had their new child, there was a, a fair old break in in his touring work in '89. She started Apogee with with him. And their first product was developed by a former Soundcraft 
engineer called Christoph Heidelberger, a Swiss guy who had left Soundcraft and went to work for Bob Mackey in uh, in the Midwest when he was um, running Mackey with Electro Voice. It was part of Electro Voice at the time. When you see how all of these threads come back to sort of essentially grow making a mixer in 1970. Yeah. Gosh, what would have happened if he'd gone, you know what, yeah. I'm going to the pub today. I'm not going to make a mixer today. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was a very accomplished organist, and he, he really, half of him wanted to be a professional organist. And so I remember when he was about 20, I think he was 24, and he said, I'm giving this up when I'm 25 to do music. Of course, he never did. (laughs) And luckily, he never did give up building mixing desks. As today, it's estimated there are more than 6 million of Graham Blythe's mic preamp circuits in existence. He has built mixing desks for Soundcraft ever since. There's still more to Phil's story, so join me for part three where we'll talk more about Focusrite. A History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow. Executive producer at Spare Women and is a bandwidth production.